Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
Today is Monday, August 24, 2020. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, protests continue in Kenosha, Wisconsin after police shoot a black man several times in the back with his children in the car. We give the, we give the latest on his status. Also, what the hell is going on in Portsmouth, Virginia? We show you what is happening where, where the cops are arresting several African-Americans for hurting a statue, but they also don't want the black DA involved. Huh, what the hell does that mean? She will join us right here on the show. Also, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy was questioned today by House Democrats who criticized his actions and questioned his motives. Where did we show you the question, including from Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, who spent 30 years working for the post office. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says he wishes he had listened to Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, why is he still being whiteballed? Plus, a new batch of anti-Trump ads to show you. Also, author Jenna Arnold will join us to talk about what white women need to know about racism. And Jerry Falwell Jr. resigns over a sexual tryst. Literally, the pool boy, remember that story out of Miami? He says that he would have sex with Jerry Falwell's wife while Jerry would watch. That's the leader of the nation's largest Christian university. Oh, I'm sorry. By the way, Jerry has resigned as president. It's time to bring the funk and roll the mark on the filter. Let's go. family of Jacob Blake says he is fighting for his life. He's in serious condition in a hospital there in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, this, of course, after this video surfaced yesterday. We're warning you right now. The reason we show these videos is because we are a news show. We don't want to have to show them, but it's a part of what we do. Folks, this shooting took place shortly after 5 p.m. yesterday when Blake was trying to break up an argument between two women. Then this happened. Wow. His three children were in the car. As you saw from that video, he was walking to get back into the car. Police officer talking to him. We don't know what was being said. The cop grabs his shirt, grabs his shirt all of a sudden to stop him. Now, mind you, he's getting in the car. But to stop him, the officer fires seven shots. You heard them hit him in the back. He goes to the hospital all throughout the night, was in surgery. Family announces on his Facebook page that he's in serious condition still fighting for his life. He is not out of danger. Those cops, those cops, they have been placed on administrative leave. 
uh, last night after this took place, uh, you, you saw uh, lots of uh, protests taking place in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, there were people uh, who, of course, uh, were out. The police department put forth a curfew that ended at 7 a.m. Folks did not care about that. Uh, at one point, there also was a truck uh, that was also uh, placed uh, on, uh, that was uh, set on fire. Uh, there was a very small fire that was uh, sent to the county courthouse. Uh, and it was in a window there. Cops then came there uh, and put it out. What also happened, of course, uh, you had uh, uh, armed military uh, in, in one of their vehicles uh, as they were uh, again uh, uh, traveling there. This also is um, again. There was some video that was uh, that, that that took place last night uh, again, and we're going to try to uh, again just 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 studying that took place. This was one of the trucks that was on fire uh, last night. Uh, that uh, outside of the courthouse there, uh, the officers came on the scene. Uh, they were there uh, in riot gear. They were firing um, rubber bullets and other items uh, into the crowd as well as they were gathered uh, outside. This is, of course, the latest shooting uh, that is taking place. George Floyd, remember, was murdered uh, just uh, on Memorial Day, and we saw massive protests take place all across the country. People are already saying that this is going to be uh, the next battlefront when it comes to what's happening with uh, police uh, in this country. Now, uh, there have been responses left and right. Uh, Joe Biden, his campaign uh, actually released a statement. Guys, we have the graphic. Pull it up, please. We'll read the statement. Yesterday in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back as police attempted to restrain him from getting into his car. His children watched from inside the car and bystanders watched in disbelief. And this morning, the nation wakes up yet again with grief and outrage that yet another black American is a victim of excessive force. This calls for an immediate, full and transparent investigation, and the officers must be held accountable. These shots pierce the soul of our nation. Jill and I pray for Jacob's recovery and for his children Equal justice has not been real for black Americans and so many others. We are at an inflection point. We must dismantle systemic racism. It is the urgent task before us. We must fight to honor the ideals laid in the original American promise, which we are yet to attain that all men and women are created equal, but more importantly, that they must be treated equally. Now, it's no surprise we have not heard from Donald Trump or the Republicans. Uh, the Wisconsin governor uh, also uh, released a statement. Do we have his statement there, folks? If do, if so, let me know. Uh, I'm gonna pull it up uh, one second, um, where he, uh, he released a statement uh, last night uh, speaking to uh, this particular issue. Tony Evans, uh, he, is the, uh, he is the governor. Uh, and then they have, uh, and again, this is the photo here uh, of um, uh, Blake. This is a photo of Blake. Uh, and these are several of his children. Uh, he is a young man uh, who, again, was trying to break up a fight that actually took place. Uh, and it is just uh, beyond sad uh, what is going on there um, in Wisconsin. Now, uh, I'm going to read uh, his one of the tweets here. Um, 
This is uh, the governor as our state reels from another attack against a black man as communities grieve and exercise their First Amendment rights to, to demand justice. And as Jacob Blake fights for his life, we are reminded that, that racism in the, is a public health crisis. There is no time to waste. That is the tweet uh, from Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin. Uh, it is, uh, again, just um, stunning uh, that we are here, what actually took place. Uh, folks, uh, this is what, um, uh, again, Evers uh, today, early about uh, five hours ago, actually addressed uh, folks uh, in his state and the nation. Uh, this is what he had to say. Man or person to have been shot, injured, or mercifully, uh, mercifully killed at the hand. Can we do that? Killed at the hands of the individuals and in law enforcement in our state and our country. As I said last night, we have and we will continue to stand with all those who have and continue and have and continue to demand justice, equity, and accountability for black lives in our country. Lives like those of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony Robinson, Dontre Hamilton, Ernest Lacey, Tyrese West, and Sybille Smith. We also stand against excessive use of force and immediate escalation when engaging with black Wisconsinites. I've said all along, we must offer our empathy. We must see the trauma, fear, and exhaustion of being black in our state and our country. But equally important to our empathy is our action. As family members, as friends, as neighbors, as people, the duty to act rests on all of us and perhaps most importantly, on us as elected officials. More than two months ago now, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes and I announced a package of legislation to increase accountability and transparency in policing in Wisconsin. This package invests in community violence interruption program and works to address the issue of inappropriate use of force by individuals in law enforcement, prohibit dangerous police practices, build upon the work of the Law Enforcement Standards Board, and strengthens accountability measures. These are common sense policies that transcend political debate. And many of them have been embraced by community, state, and federal leaders on both sides of the aisle, including our neighbors in both Iowa and Minnesota who have passed similar comprehensive, meaningful reform. Yet two months later, and with Wisconsin legislative, the Wisconsin's legislative leaders have failed to act. This movement has touched every corner of Wisconsin and frankly, I should not need to call a special, special session when people across our state, from streets from my small hometown of Plymouth to the streets of Milwaukee are demanding their elected leaders take action. Leaders show up. Leaders do the work that needs to be done and that the people demand of them. But we cannot wait for Republican leadership to show up for work because clearly they intend to keep us waiting. That's not going to get cut it. Not for me, not for Lieutenant Governor Barnes, and certainly, certainly not the people of the state who are leading this and leading at this time and in this moment. That's why today I'm calling for a special session of the legislature to take up the package of legislation we announced earlier this year. We must begin the long but important path towards ensuring our state and our country starts, starts to live up to our promises of equity and justice. I want to be clear, this is not the time for politics. I'm urging Republican leadership to rise to this important moment in history, 
to put people before politics and to put lives of black Wisconsinites above politics and to give us, give this special session the urgent and productive effort this moment demands and that the people of Wisconsin deserve. We must rise to this movement and this moment and meet it with our empathy, our human, humanity, and a fierce commitment to disrupt the cycle of systemic racism and bias that devastates black families and communities. To see the daily trauma, fear, and exhaustion, exhaustion black Wisconsinites face, and to show up day after day to do the work that needs to be done. I know folks across our state will be making their voices heard in communities across Wisconsin. Every person should be able to make their voices heard and report on these calls to action without any fear of being unsafe. If you're exercising that right today and in the days ahead, please do so peacefully and please wear your mask and keep social distance as best you can. We know racism and the race, racial disparities in our state can't be solved by any single bill or package of bills. This can only be the first step. As our state reels from another attack on a black man at the hands of law enforcement, as communities grieve and exercise their First Amendment rights to demand justice, and as Jacob Blake fights for his life, we are all reminded that racism is a public health crisis. There is no time to waste. Thank you so much. And now I'll turn things over to Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. All right, thank you so much, Governor Evers, uh, for taking the moment. Thank you for your uh, sincerity that's much needed uh, at a moment like this. Last night, as you stated, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times in front of his children. And let me be clear, this was not an accident. This wasn't bad police work. This felt like some sort of vendetta uh, being taken out on a member of our community. The officer's deadly actions attempted to take a person's life in broad daylight. And like many of you, the video is etched into my mind, like so many other past videos that are just like it. It was a video that I would have rather not had to have watched. But the irony isn't lost on me that as Jacob Blake was actually trying to de-escalate a situation in his community, but the responding officer didn't feel the need to do the same. And now we all know Jacob Blake's name. And as I've said before, as we've all said before, this is familiar violence to too many of us, especially of those of us who are on the receiving end, whose communities have been over-policed, whose children learn early on that police officers aren't always serving and protecting them as they should. This didn't start with George Floyd, unfortunately. It's been around far longer than him. And if we don't do anything, this will continue as we saw yesterday. I would hate to see this not end with Jacob Blake. And that's why we have to respond. And we know that we can't remedy the white supremacy and the systemic racism that is built into all of our systems in just a couple years or with any package of legislation. But that doesn't mean we don't act. That doesn't mean that we stand still. We have to do everything that we, have, that we can do within our power to first call out the systemic violence that happens every day in this state and in this country, and then do the work to rebuild those systems that perpetuate it, excuse me, not just when a black man is murdered in front of his children, but when schools that serve the same children are systemically underfunded, or when we see black women have to fight to be heard in our healthcare system, or when 
Black communities are expected to live in more polluted communities, dealing with environmental hazards and toxins and contaminants. These two are forms of systemic violence. And the social and economic consequences of these deep-seated inequities, they reach every community across Wisconsin. That's why leaders at every level of government have an obligation to hear the demands for justice for those who are marching in the streets. You think after the past few months of people who are stepping up to demand justice that police departments, chiefs of police, even police unions will rush to implement some sort of reform. But that hasn't happened, or else you wouldn't have seen the actions that we all had to see last night. People's pain, anger, and frustration is a long overdue call to action. In June, the governor and I called on the legislature to bring some level of accountability and transparency into law enforcement. And we knew that this legislation would only be a first step towards justice, but that doing nothing is not an option. Unfortunately, our legislative leaders, the majority party, the Republicans in the legislature, although this is not political, these are facts, they have done nothing. And this is unfortunately what we as Wisconsinites, not we as the executive branch, not we as the governor, as the governor Evers administration, we as Wisconsinites have come to expect nothing any time that we find ourselves in a time of crisis. The people of our state are done waiting for their leaders and their elected officials to show up. And so are we. And as the governor said, true leaders, they do the work that has to be done. True leaders do the work that people demand of them, especially when it's hard. So I sincerely hope for the people all across Wisconsin that we see some leadership from our legislature in the coming days. As I said before, doing nothing is not an option. This is not something that you can just sit on your hands or bury your head in the sand in. To everybody that is as tired as I am, know that I stand with you in this fight for a better world, a world where black lives actually matter, a world with decency, a world with true justice, a world full of equity and opportunity for all people, for black people who have been dealt a bad hand far too many times. And remember that these things are always worth fighting for. So I want to remind people to please take care of yourselves. Please stay safe. Join me in praying for Jacob Blake and his family, and join me in fighting to make sure that this does not ever happen again. Thank you so much. All right, folks, let's go to our panel right now to talk about, talk about this issue, uh, and that is we have, of course, uh, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Eugene Craig, CEO, Eugene Craig Organization, <laughs> Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for the Environmental Justice EPA. Uh, Mustafa, I, I will start with you. Now, a neighbor said that uh, Jacob Blake went to the store about 15 minutes before the shooting. He was barbecuing with his kids. When the neighbor returned, Blake was trying to break up a fight. Seven or eight cops arrived on the scene. They wanted to talk with Blake, but he wasn't interested and started putting his kids in the car to leave. Now, he has five children. Rand is in age from three to seven. Blake was airlifted to a Milwaukee hospital, again, in serious condition as of early this morning. We don't have to show the video again. Don't, don't, take, take it out. Take it out. Hey, take it out. Now, according to Blake's father, he is, again, he's out of surgery, expected to survive. But the protests do continue there, but he's still in serious condition, Mustafa. You see this. Here's a guy who's trying to break a fight up. You're the cops, you're trying to talk to somebody, and let's just break it all down, okay? He doesn't want to hear it, he's trying to leave. You're seven or eight cops. I think before you pull your gun out, you could actually grab somebody. You could grab somebody, okay? 
You can, let's say he sped away. That's fine. You follow him. But you don't fire seven shots into the back to get him to stop. They feel like they can, we can be sacrificed at any moment for any reason. A police officer's having a bad day. He can pull the trigger. Uh, a police officer feels that he's threatened. He can pull the trigger. Uh, and they wonder why this rage um, that is inside of our communities, I know it's inside of me. When I think about what James Baldwin shared with us when he said to be black in this country and to be relatively conscious means to be in a rage almost all the time. Each and every opportunity, each and every time that an officer seems to have a choice, the eight officers could have detained him. But the reason would be, why would you detain him? If he doesn't want to talk to you, then he shouldn't have to talk to you if he is not guilty of any crime. And then for you to think that you have the ability and responsibility to stop him with deadly force. You didn't even utilize a taser. You decide to shoot the man seven times in the back in front of his children. And then also knowing that there have been other cases in that same city with a white man who attacked a police officer. They, they tased him. Um, and then he took the taser out and then chased the police officer. The police officer ran, jumped in the police officer's car, then got back out of the police officer's car, got in his own car, drove around the parking lot, ran back into the police officer's car, and they still did not shoot this man. That is why there is this rage that is going on across our country because we can no longer be sacrificed. We can no longer have these crosshairs placed on us in every situation and the, if we had a Department of Justice that actually did its damn job, it would have been investigating these types of situations. If we had an administration who cared even a little bit about what's going on, they would have moved forward. They would have sat down with these police unions and said something has to change. From the top, we're saying you are going to change, but they don't have an interest in this. Well, in the reality... Uh, here again, we keep coming to this whole issue, Kelly, and that is the behavior of police officers. The fact of the matter is they have a belief, I can shoot first, ask questions later. Again, you're coming on the scene. The guy does not want to talk. Again, if, if this guy wants to leave, here's the deal. His, his, you can get in your car and follow him wherever he goes. You can, you can run a trace on his driver's license. You can then go to his home and arrest him if need be. But death is death. It is final. And this is what we consistently see from these cops who their only action is, okay, you know what? What the hell? I'm just going to shoot you. In the well, back. In the back. Um, well, in this case, thankfully, uh, James Blake is still alive, according to reports at the moment. So I don't want to speak death over his life because we are all praying, hopefully, that he will pull through. Um, but just in general, I am sick and tired of having to beg for my life just because it's my life. And... That's what I see in this video. That's what I see in the other videos. That's what I hear by all accounts when it comes to uh, police brutality, specifically police, police brutality um, against African-Americans and black people in this country. It is absurd and it is disgusting 
And I, I am tired. I am tired. I am angry. Uh, like Mustafa said, I, I am in a state of rage all the time. And it, it doesn't go away because this does not go away. According to uh, reports that I just pulled up, I want to say maybe it was less than 30 days last year that police officers did not shoot somebody or kill them. Only a month's worth of days out of 365 days last year did the cops not, you know, kill somebody unarmed or a civilian, what have you. And it just makes no sense. And I guarantee you, if this was a white person, this would not have happened. If this was anybody else outside of a black person, chances are this would not have ever happened and would not have even come across the mind of these police officers to do what they did. They literally took his shirt and held him steady in order to shoot him in a car with children in it. So it's not just the life of the man that you tried to kill. You had blatant disregard for children in a car. I don't care what happens to these officers. They don't need administrative leave. They need to be fired. They need to be indicted. They need to be stripped of all titles and pension and whatever type of livelihood they could possibly have after this event because they don't deserve it. They need to be convicted and they need to be jailed. And they need to be in jail for life because this is a blatant disregard for life. But the, but the deal, though, is, but here's the deal, though. The reality is this here, Eugene, and that is this here. You have a process. Uh, 30 days. I, this is how they protect police officers uh, in terms of how you go through this here uh, and, and how they are protected in these shootings. Yeah, look, in many states, uh, you have Leo Board, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And um, before we get real justice, that's probably the first thing that has to be repealed. Um, you know, there are a lot of folk on the right that always talk about, oh my gosh, we're creating special rights, we're creating special rights. Well, literally, when it comes to this particular job, special rights are created. Um, you know, they're able to, you know, corroborate their story before they actually have to submit a report, right? They're able to actually um, take, you know, time to um, uh, uh, confer with colleagues before a real investigation happened. Then that investigation could take however long um, before, you know, they quote unquote deem that they have probable cause that a crime actually happened or that something happened. Um, you know, whereas uh, if it was the roles were reversed or if it was me and you, um, the fact that, you know, there are uh, seven, you know, bullets lodged into somebody is enough probable cause for an arrest. Um, you know, but we all saw the video. We saw, you know, what happened there. And at minimum, it's reckless. It's reckless engagement at minimum. On the maximum side, it's attempted murder. And they should be charged as such. Well, we, uh, of course, uh, uh, will continue to follow this. Uh, it is uh, sad and shocking, and I'm quite sure there's going to be a second night tonight uh, protest taking place there uh, in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Folks got to go to a break. When we come back, we will talk about what's happening in Portsmouth, Virginia. I mean, just absolutely strange where the police are going bonkers, going after black elected officials over hurting a statue. What makes it worse, they're targeting the black DA because they don't want her involved in this case and they actually have been lying. They've actually been lying about her as well. We'll talk with her and others involved in this unbelievable story next right here Roller Martin Unfiltered. 
You want to support Roller March Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. As our community comes together to support the fight against racial injustice, I want to take a second to talk about one thing we can do to ensure our voices are heard. Not tomorrow, but now. Have your voices heard in terms of what kind of future we want by taking the 2020 census today at 2020census.gov? Now, folks, let me help you out. The census is a count of everyone living in the country. It happens once every 10 years. It is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. The thing that's important is that the census informs funding, billions of dollars, how they are spent in our communities every single year. I grew up in Clinton Park in Houston, Texas, and we wanted, to, we wanted new parks and roads and uh, senior citizen center. Well, the census helps inform all of that and where funding goes. It also determines how many seats your state will get in the U.S. House of Representatives. Young black men and young children of color are historically undercounted which means a potential loss of funding of services that helps our community. Folks, we have the power to change that. We have the power to help determine where hundreds of billions in federal funding go each year for the next 10 years. Funding that can impact our community, our neighborhoods, and our families and friends. Folks, responses are 100% confidential and can't be shared with your landlord, law enforcement, or any government agency. So please, take the 2020 census today. Shape your future. Start at 2020census.gov. You want to support Roller March Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, let's talk about this just strange story out of Portsmouth, Virginia. Now, we, we told you last week how the folks there were targeting, targeting an African-American legislator for hurting a statue. Okay. Then the story gets stranger. Then it gets stranger. Then they are going after a number of black leaders in the city. Okay, all right, that, that, that's strange. Then they want to, they want to target the black prosecutor by saying that she was present at one of these protests when she actually wasn't. It's, it's, it's real strange, it's, it's real strange. Okay, so, so here's the deal, State Senator Louise Lucas She's been charged. She's been charged with uh, two counts, two felonies for an incident at the city's Confederate monument that took place in June. Okay, that that's that's what happened there. Um, we're going to show you some video of a news conference uh, that involved uh, a Virginia delegate, uh, Don Scott. Go ahead and roll the video, please. 
only reason they're doing it now. Don't be fooled. This is for political purposes only. This is their motives are for politics only. They, and they, they issued these warrants the day before the most powerful black woman in the history of the state of Virginia was going into special session. That is the day that they decided to issue these. Isn't that a little suspicious? Don't you have an idea about what was going on at that time? That is what they have done over time. We will not fall for it, not this time. Not this time. We see it. It's very apparent. They're not hiding it. They issued the warrants today. She on her way up to Richmond and they issued them. It's chaos. So we know what's going on and we're prepared for it. We all, we've always been. We've made, we've made for this moment. We're made for this moment. All right, folks, they've also gone after Dr. Mark Whitaker, a former councilman and associate pastor of New Bethel Baptist Church, who was found guilty on three counts of forgery in July of 2018. So we're joined by Whitaker and Don Scott. Uh, let me start. Don, let me start with you first. First of all, where did all this stuff begin? Where did this start? Is it over this? Is it over the monument? Is it over uh, the statue? What's going on in Portsmouth, Virginia? I, I I believe that what is going on is a struggle for for power. Uh, some folks do not want to share power uh, with black folks. Unfortunately. Uh, this community has been dealing with racial strife here since I've been here. I've been here since 2005, and I've seen this uh, throughout. Uh, it is about power and a struggle. And as the black majority raises its head and becomes more politically sophisticated and asks for more city services and asks for equal treatment under the law, then those who have been in power for a while, they, this is how they respond. They criminalize the criminal justice system against black leadership. And they've done it since I've been here. They did it. Uh, beginning when I first got it, they did it with the mayor, the former mayor. They charged him with a criminal charge. They charged uh, Dr. Whitaker with a charge. They tried to charge uh, Doc, uh, Sheriff Moore, who was the current sheriff, but these are all black elected officials with a charge. Now they've gone to the point of trying to charge uh, Senator Lucas. And then today, someone went down to the magistrate to swear out charges against her daughter, who's a city councilwoman and vice mayor. They charged her with a misdemeanor. Okay, so, 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 okay, so what, who, who are all these people filing charges? Is, it the, is this well, the Portsmouth, Virginia Police Department? Well, it is a combination of two. The Sheriff's Department, the old Sheriff's Department under the old regime, that was a sheriff who was in power, who lost the election, and he's still making mischief now. And now it is the Portsmouth Police Department who filed the warrant uh, against Senator Lucas. They purposely uh, went around the normal process of dealing with the Commonwealth Attorney. These events happened June 10th. And now, almost 70 days later, is when they decided to bring the charges. And I want to remind everybody, the chief of police is black. The city manager now is black. But the four white votes, there are four city council people out of seven who are white, and they stick together. But, 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 but wait, but wait, but wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. So you said yes. that the police chief is black? Yes, yes, sir. And the, you said the city manager is black or the mayor? City manager is black. Okay, yes. so here's what I'm trying to understand. Mm -hmm. How can these cops just on their own decide to file charges? Doesn't the police chief have something to say about that? Well, the, the, from my understanding, the police chief is the one that directed them to do it. And the police chief, from my understanding, with the city manager who disclosed that the chief had a conflict of interest and was told to ask the uh, state police and or the FBI to look into it. My understanding is that the state police investigated, found no charges and let it go. And then the chief decided to go ahead and bring it herself. Another telling thing about this, the day after these events happened, on June 11th, 
the lead investigator, the lead officer, who is a sergeant. We're not talking about a lieutenant. We're not talking about a captain. We're not talking about assistant chief or a chief. A sergeant who was on the scene the entire time that day, he wrote an email the very next day condemning Senator Lucas with his own personal opinion and a whole lot of other things that he wrote. And then he ends up being the lead investigator. This is things that you would see in Russia or in Trump's new America. These are the type of things that people do when they want to silence the, the opposition. They use the criminal punishment system to silence opposition, and that is what they have done. Unfortunately, uh, we see it, and we're prepared for it. They decided... Senator Lucas has introduced two powerful bills this special session dealing with police reform. One is she wants to study the pattern and practices and be able to bring civil lawsuits against localities and police uh, departments that violate civil rights. This is big in the state of Virginia. The second thing she did was she's bringing a bill that will that would remove probable cause as the smelling of marijuana. You know, police pull over young black males and young black people and brown people and poor people all the time and say, I smell marijuana, and that gives them probable cause to do a search. That would She introduced a bill that would remove that probable cause. So these are two big, huge criminal justice reform bills, police accountability bills, and this is the repercussions that you have to face when you're in black when you're black and you're in leadership. So, yeah, but, but again, you said the police chief is black. This is their statement mm -hmm. that um, uh, Chief Green, Angela Green, uh, this is, go to my iPad, please. This is a photo of her, Chief Angela Green. So she released this statement, um, and then she talked about uh, the incident that took place with the Confederate monument on July 10th, 2020. Uh, she said she called for uh, an outside uh, agency, uh, and then once they determined no conflict of interest. What's interesting here is that she also said uh, wanted a special grand jury, yet she claims in here that the, that the that the DA Stephanie Morales somehow could be called as a witness. I'm trying to figure out, Doc Don, what what that makes no sense. That that first of all, if even if you say that the that the DA, her specifically, could be called as a witness, the district attorney could recuse herself from any involvement and others in her department still handle the prosecution. I mean, we actually saw that, where Kim Fox in, in Cook County, uh, she stepped away from uh, involvement in the case of Jesse Smollett and other, district, other DAs in her office handled the case. This police chief is saying she wanted a special grand jury and Morales' office to be completely removed from this. Yeah, I, I want to be really careful. I want to stay in my lane, as they say. Uh, they don't trust the people uh, who we elected. Uh, the Commonwealth Attorney, Stephen Morales, was elected by our community to make the decisions and the judgments that help us best. I don't want to get into uh, putting her in a position where she has to make those calls. They don't trust her. Uh, but we're going to do is let the process play out and trust her to make whatever judgment that she needs to be, makes whatever ethical judgment that she needs to make about whether she has a conflict or not. That's how it's usually done. She has to determine what she has a conflict. They don't get to tell her ahead of time that she has a conflict, nor do they get to lie on a warrant and call her as a probable witness when they know, in fact, that she was not there. So everything that they've said so far has been a, a, an issue, but we're going to let the process play out. Uh, Dr. Whitaker, what is going on uh, uh, with you, how, your involvement in this? How are they targeting you? Yes, um, thank you, uh, Roland, for having me on the show today. Um, my case uh, is one that uh, 
demonstrates the power of systemic uh, racism um, in the fact that uh, you had a sheriff, in my case, that uh, came after me and my church, uh, my family, um, and the questions that people should be asking um, is why is it that they're using a criminal process to come at certain black leaders, not all of them, but certain black leaders. And, and that is because for those of us who are speaking on social justice issues about economic disparities, uh, when I was elected to council in 2015, uh, I raised the issue about the disparity of police on uh, the police force and as far as black police officers. Uh, I spoke about uh, President Obama's 21st century uh, policing, uh, the disparities we saw in our fire department. Uh, we broke up uh, a 75-year contract that one white law firm had representing public housing for 75 years. Um, we were able to have that contract awarded to a black law firm. Um, we were able to have a disparity study done to show that um, there was some egregious discrimination. And so we, whenever we deal with economic disparities, that sheriff that brought those charges against me, we cut his budget by a million dollars. We took city offices that were located in privately owned buildings where they were charging the city more than market rate rent, and none of those buildings you know were owned by black folks. We had those buildings moved back into City Hall, no rent. And the repercussions for me stepping out like this and dealing with the socioeconomic issues, which I think black elected officials, when we get in office, we should not get up there and conform. We should get there and transform and make the system more equitable than when we found it. And as a result of that, the former sheriff brought up 20 indictments, got 20 indictments against me back in 2017. He lied before the special grand jury. He presented false evidence to the special grand jury to the extent uh, that I was stealing a million dollars. You would have to see this stuff to believe it, um, that there were monies missing. Uh, he, uh, they brought up an identity theft of a Social Security number that they were saying that uh, our church's credit union used uh, when there wasn't even a social security number there. And just how they could blanketly use the criminal justice system to come after black elected officials to silence our voice. And I'm an example of how that was done. It was well orchestrated. Uh, it went through the legal system and uh, I was found uh, guilty on three of the counts, the judge threw out 17 counts um, after the second day of trial. And on the three counts, it was a gentleman who had a, a former criminal record who they had intimidated. And so just how they are using this criminal justice system, and it's a call for us as black elected officials and black citizens to make sure that when we vote and when we put blacks in elected positions, hold them accountable for representing our interests. And so when you see a black chief, a black city manager, um, I'm of a firm belief that racism would not be as strong as it is today were it not for black participation. And that's what you're seeing. And it's a sad thing in a majority black city. We have a majority white city council conservative because we did not vote and do what we should have done 
as a people in this community. And so this is what you're seeing happening now as a result in Portsmouth. You have here, uh, go to my iPad, please. This is the racial breakdown of Portsmouth. African-Americans, 52%, white, 40%, Hispanic, 4%, uh, other 3%, Asian, 1%. Uh, Don, some would say, though, wait a minute, you got a black city manager, you got a black police chief. How is this the issue of race? I, I will always say, uh, I'm from Texas, too, and, and you know that. And uh, I always tell people that black folk fought for the Confederates as well. So we have to understand that. They've already, uh, there are people who have always been able to co-op blacks in positions of a power. I don't know how they do it with promises or whatever, but for some reason, they have always been able to co-op people who are in positions of authority to hurt their own people. I can't understand it. It's not a matter of enforcing the law as the chief has said. It is really a matter of not enforcing the law in an equal and equitable way. We had a black, the current mayor now, he was accused of alleged to have double dip. He was getting paid a retirement of money, and he was also getting paid from the city as acting city manager, and they would, and he was told that that was impermissible. No charges were brought. In fact, he was a city manager, and he got elected mayor. We had a two white city council people that both got sued for defamation, and the person who was defamed won a lawsuit and cost the city hundreds of thousands of dollars, almost $700,000, and nobody's recalled them. Nobody's looked into their background. We had another city councilman. These are all the, the white members who was accused of uh, having an affair and beating uh, and having a fight with his baby's mama uh, outside his wife's marriage. And nothing happened, no charges, and he was not punished. In fact, I think he's been reelected two times since then. So there is a double standard for those who uh, are black in, in positions of authority and those who are white. And, you know, we've always had people, uh, black people, who would be in a position of authority who who might not share our, our interest. Uh, this is a photo uh, you, will, you will witness uh, some, some today on uh, Trump's uh, convention speech today. This is a photo of the city council here. I'm just curious, uh, Dr. Whitaker, are folks in Portsmouth, are they elected single-member districts or, state, or uh, citywide? Uh, we're, we're elected uh, citywide, uh, so it's not by districts. And um, just want to piggyback on what uh, Attorney Scott, who represented me in, in my case, um, that issue with the mayor, which I hope your listeners caught what he said, the issue with the mayor was brought to the attention of counsel by Dr. Lydia Patton, who is now the city manager, that the former city manager, who is the mayor now, was double dipping, receiving his full retirement benefit and pay. That's a violation of Virginia law. When I brought that to the attention of our Commonwealth attorney, Stephanie Morales, nothing has been done. Um, we've had people who have died in the jail, black folks, brought it to the attention of the Commonwealth attorney, and nothing has yet to be done. But yet when it comes to the prosecution of black elected officials, that does occur. And um, I'm glad that uh, this spotlight is being put on it by your national audience, because what has happened in a town like Portsmouth, um, you get these things locally locked. And because it has been happening over years, uh, my father, uh, who is one of the senior pastors in the city, uh, came here in 1964, uh, part of Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, there were black clergy then who did not believe that King was called by God. 
And you still have that mentality here. And until we wake up as black folks and recognize that when we start dealing with white supremacy and compromising ourselves to it, they will use us up and kick us out. And that's why when they see persons like myself, Mayor Kenny Wright, when we got up there and started doing what was right for our folks, a purposeful agenda, uh, because Dr. King said that change does not come in on the wheels of inevitability, that you have to make it happen intentionally. And so that's what we did. And now um, I have suffered the repercussions of that. Uh, I was a tenured professor at Hampton University going into my 20th year teaching. And because of these trumped up charges, I lost my job over it. And so we have to know that when we step out like this, they're going to come at us. Got it. But we have to be willing to take the sacrifice because of the truth. All right. Mark, that's what, what we have stood on. Mark Whitaker, Don Scott, I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Now, the Portsmouth police, this is what this was also interesting here. They are trying to prevent District Attorney Stephanie Morales from handling the Confederate Monuments case. And you saw there why I read from the police chief's statement. The police chief said that Portsmouth Commonwealth's attorney, Stephanie Morales, can't prosecute the 14 cases because she has been named as a potential witness. Well, DA Morales joins us right now. So, okay, so she's saying you were a witness. Were you on the scene when supposedly they attacked or did whatever to this monument? Absolutely not. I was most certainly not on the scene. So how are you a witness if you weren't even there? I'm not a witness, you know, and, and the clear ramification of naming me as a witness uh, creates a situation where now we have to determine with the court whether there is indeed a conflict of interest that would warrant a special prosecutor coming on the case, which creates a situation then that you have someone who is acting as Commonwealth's attorney, who is not accountable to the members of my community who elected me to do this very job. Never thought I would see myself fighting to stay on a case where you certainly know no matter what the outcome is, you are going to have a substantial amount of people upset with you. However, I fight this fight every day to ensure that uh, we are working in a fair and equitable way. And I will not sit back while anyone attempts to usurp my authority to do the job that the people of Portsmouth have elected me to do. So... So the police chief says you are a potential witness. You're either a witness or you're not. So has she even responded? What's the evidence? What What are you talking about? Like, what does that even mean? Well, it's, you know, this is a very peculiar process, the way this is playing out. Uh, because typically we don't see um, cases manifesting in this way where, the magistrate system is utilized two months after the fact. Typically, when there's a long-term investigation, the matter is presented to my office in order for us to make a prosecutorial determination about whether there's even probable cause to present this to a grand jury. Usually, if law enforcement is going to the magistrate, they do it right when the incidents take place. And so this is not, you know, this is the usual course of action they took, but not in a usual time frame. And so in order to determine usually who witnesses are, you lay out the reason why the witnesses are to be deemed witnesses in the first place. And the way it's listed, uh, it just indicates that I am, quote unquote, potentially a material and eyewitness. It places me in this category. And again, I most certainly was not an eyewitness. So I can't speak to the, the sentiments or the thought process 
of the individual who led this investigation. All I can do is, is speak to what the ramifications are for our community. And again, when they elect me to do a job, I stand up to do that job no matter how difficult. Does it seem strange that all of a sudden, two months after this supposed incident took place, that the police would hit 14 people with charges? Well, again, you know, um, we've seen all types of things occur. And the fact that you asked this question is a good time, time to highlight that the majority of the cases that come before my office, they don't have national media attention. They don't involve people who are particularly powerful or who have voice. And this is where my office has to stand in the gap to ensure that there is procedural fairness. And so, no, we don't typically see this happen on a regular basis. But when we do, we are the ones who stand in the gap to ensure that there is procedural justice for all who are involved, uh, because that's a very important component. And, you know, I'm very, very concerned in this case with procedural fairness. Um, and, and when we have a delay where, again, you have a situation not getting into the merits of the case, but everybody who has paid attention and who has watched the Facebook Live and other footage can see who was on the scene. And, you know, to, to think about whether or not law enforcement could have, you know, procedurally in a just manner uh, acted more quickly or, again, go through the typical process, present my office with a prosecutorial, with a file that we can make a prosecutorial determination with, um, that would have been the usual typical process. But again, in Virginia, we have no intake unit in the in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. We have the magistrate system, and it's in a you know a very good time to highlight the systemic uh, issues that we face that can create these opportunities for procedural injustice. So, um, the, the Virginia pilot has this story, uh, and they named the other uh, 14 people charged: NAACP President James Boyd, um, um, Vice President Louis Gibbs, School Board Member. Uh, Lakeisha Clue Atkinson, public defender Brenda Spry, assistant public defenders Meredith Kramer and Alexandra Stevens, Amira Bethea, Kimberly Wimbish, uh, Dana Worthington, Lakeisha Hicks, Raymond Brothers, uh, Hannah Renee Rivera, and Brandon Woodard. Now, what's interesting is that several of those who were charged there were present on the day of the protest. Yet, uh, the state senator who was charged was was weird to me is that this says she was in Richmond, and I, I mean I'm just and I guess and, and what's what's interesting here is that again I, I've had experience covering things. Normally, police police make their charges and then it goes to the district attorney's office as to whether or not it moves forward. So in this case, they're saying you are a potential witness, but they don't even state that you were there. I was not there, you know, so I can I can very, very clearly um, state to everyone that I was not on scene. Um, and, you know, again, what you pointed out is something that we have to grapple with right now. We have to look at the way the system is designed and what effect does that have and what power does that place in the hands of people uh, to create these situations where there's just mass confusion, which doesn't benefit anyone in my community or beyond. But it's, you know, very clear. I was not present, um, and the, the effect of naming me as a witness is to create a conflict of interest, uh, which brings in a special prosecutor. It's very clear. It's clear what the efforts are, and it's actually, you know, the, the chief of police opined later uh, and, and expounded further, uh, because initially at her press conference, she had indicated that uh, she spoke with me 
she asked for a special grand jury and a special prosecutor and no action was taken. And so to clarify with that, um, I'll give you the example with the case that you know about. There's a, a case that I prosecuted back in 2015 through 2016 where William Chapman II was killed by a police officer in my city. And when I prosecuted that case, and I, I was the lead prosecutor on that case myself, which ended in a voluntary manslaughter conviction, when I prosecuted that case myself, I did not take that case to a special grand jury. I took that case to a regular grand jury after receiving a complete investigator file. And so I explained those things to the chief of police about how the process works. And following that, I released a statement from my office and placed it on my website that spoke directly to the process that I require a complete investigative file before I will make a determination and consider whether something goes to grand jury. And clearly, you know, I've made it very, very clear that the only way a special prosecutor will be brought in is in the case of a conflict. So you can't just call me and say, I want a special prosecutor because I would like to have someone else. There has to be a conflict. So that knowledge was there, but there wasn't a clear statement as to the fact that there had been nothing presented to me for me to even make a determination. So later she expounded in another release and indicated that she had determined that she could not provide a file to me because I had a conflict. She actually used the words in her statement, conflict. And so it's, you know, even though at first I was listed as a witness, now it's actually been said by the chief of police that they have determined that I have a conflict. And the only person that's responsible for determining that attorneys have conflicts are the attorneys ourselves. We're supposed to acknowledge that. And so if I'm a witness, that's up to me to state that, and I was not present. So I am absolutely fighting uh, for my right to stay in this case and the capacity that the, the members of my community elected me to serve. It's not easy, but nothing I do is easy. That case where I had to prosecute the police officer, tried that case myself, that was not easy. So I don't shy away from difficult work. Um, I lean into the work of the community. And I, you know, I have to also say there was a group that I was a part of founding in Virginia called Virginia Progressive Prosecutors for Justice. And we advocated very strongly for all measures related to police accountability. We talked about warning reform in the area of no-knock warrants so that we don't have what happened to our sister, Breonna Taylor, happen in Virginia. And so many other things that we advocated for that, again, we have to acknowledge the work that I have done um, that may lead some people to decide we want a different prosecutor on this case. But unfortunately for them, I was elected by the people of my community to do this difficult work and to make these determinations and ensure that we have equity, racial equity, procedural fairness at all times for everybody. All right. DA Stephanie Morales, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks. Uh, let's now go to this story out of Tennessee, which is extremely strange. Tennessee protesters can now lose their right to vote under a new law signed by Governor Bill Lee. Protesters who camp out on state property, such as the activists who have demonstrated for months outside the state capitol against racial injustice, could now face felony charges punishable by up to six years in prison. Convicted felons are automatically stripped of their voting rights in Tennessee. Now, I'm sorry. Now, all these conservatives out here love talking about 2A, 2A, meaning the Second Amendment. And here you have Tennessee passing a law trying to make it a felony for people practicing their First Amendment rights? Eugene Craig, 
Sounds to me like Republicans in Tennessee are trying to keep black folks and others from protesting. Uh, that's exactly what's going on. Um, you'll see Republicans stretch uh, many definitions to stop black folks from doing something. That's what we're seeing in Tennessee right now. Um, they don't like the pressure. They don't like the attention. They don't like um, the progress and change that comes when people are actually able to stand up for themselves and demand uh, their just due in this in this country, in this society. And so what you're seeing now is the literal criminalization of their First Amendment rights. That's nothing more, nothing less, just literally the criminalization of it. And, um, you know, I think, you know, and this is where, hey, the courts become very important because when you have uh, constitutional violations like this, typically you'll go to federal court and, you know, it'll work itself through the federal judiciary. Um, but, you know, as we know, um, Team Trump has you know, been actively reworking to uh, reshape what that judiciary looks like. Um, it, it is strange, Mustafa. Again, what we're seeing is we are seeing the targeting of protesters. I'm trying to figure out how in the hell this thing hasn't even been declared unconstitutional by targeting people who are protesting. It's a First Amendment right. It is a right, but we see our rights continue to be stripped away, you know, left and right. Uh, and again, Department of Justice, where are you at? How come you're not stepping in on some of these things? But beyond that, you know, to have a felony on your record is some serious stuff because that then also eliminates you from a whole bunch of sets of opportunities. So not only do they strip you away from being able to vote, then they stop it. Say you are a young person, and we know plenty of young people are out protesting, trying to make change happen. Now you can't get federal uh, student aid because you got a felony on your record. Um, and there is a laundry list of other things that go along with that. So we understand this, this vicious game of trying to strip people's opportunities to fully engage in a civic process. And here's the last thing I'll say on this. So you're upset that people are protesting on the land that their tax dollars is paying for you to do your job on. There's something not quite right. Um, it really is baffling. But then again, this is the same Tennessee, Kelly, uh, that previously wanted to restrict uh, folks in the collection of ballots. This, th this is the latest tactic of Republicans to target people of color, whether it is voting or whether it is protesting. Yeah, I, I just feel like I need to make this announcement to those who are trying to infiltrate and perpetuate these types of policies. Jim Crow died a very long time ago, not long enough of a time ago, but long enough. Nevertheless, you cannot think for a second that we can go back to that kind of fascist regime without some form of pushback from the minority group, quote unquote, that is becoming larger by the day just by way of demographics and how this country is shaping up. Um, it, is, it is just appalling to me that people think now they can get away with something so blatantly unconstitutional. Um, and the fact that it's not a, uh, a situation of bringing a weapon to the state property or fighting on the state property, just spending the night, just your presence there in protest, which is your First Amendment right. So they're telling me that basically I have somewhat of a curfew to, to protest. 
even though I did all the necessary precautions in order to do so within my First Amendment right. So you're infringing on my First Amendment right. You are, by way of doing that, you are infringing upon my right to vote. Um, and then you're infringing upon my other First Amendment right, not by way of just assembly, but protest as well. So it's just on all accounts, just frankly dumb of these people to think that they can get away with it. Well, but, like but again, if, if you're in power, but if you're in power, if you're in power, that's the whole point. They believe they can get away with it. That's the whole strategy. I mean, bottom line I is that. they're it, looking. It, it doesn't make it right. No, no, I understand that. But again, no, their whole their whole deal is. Look, this is no different than, 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 than during Jim Crow era. You pass laws to force the people you're fighting to go to court and fight it to waste crucial time. That's what the whole strategy is. And again, Tennessee has previously uh, done that. Uh, folks, uh, if uh, is Reverend uh, is Reverend there, Reverend uh, uh, Barber there. All right, Reverend William Barber, uh, repairs with a breach. Uh, what's happening in Tennessee? Again, this is the kind of thing that we have seen. Historically, uh, where folks in power want to suppress black folks from uh, and others from uh, advancing their rights. Now, all of a sudden, you want to make it a felony if you're protesting? Yeah, we, gain recognized gain. And exactly. And that, that group there was actually been a part of Justin, one of the leaders, a part of the Poor People's Campaign uh, from the beginning. And, you know, this has a long history, Roland. They started out protesting uh, some years ago, uh, kind of a Moral Monday situation, challenging the Speaker of the House. Uh, the Speaker of the House called them criminals and then ended up having to resign himself <laughs> for the things that he was doing in the Speaker of the House. They actually targeted one young man, trying to do everything they can to remove him. He's a student of Diane Nash and James Lawson and the Vanderbilt School of Theology. But that now they say they want to make it a felony if you protest. Now, this is, is across the country. South Carolina, as you know, tried to charge Bree Newsom with a felony for climbing up and, and um, challenging the uh, a, a Confederate flag. Uh, they tried to make this a felony down in Alabama. They don't want to let you inside of the state legislature. When we were in North Carolina, Roland, when they first arrested us, they arrested us for praying. They said we could not even bring a placard inside the General Assembly building, had to stay in a designated place. And if we raised our voices, uh, uh, raised our voices, and someone complained about it, then in fact, we could be arrested and be removed. This one is going further. It's saying we want to do all these things and take your right to vote. It's got to be challenged in court. We're in touch with the on the ground. We're talking to some lawyers now. Uh, this has to be fought in court. It cannot stand that your protesting can then turn into a felony. Nonviolent protesting, by the way. Nonviolent protesting turn into a felony and then used as an excuse uh, to take your voting rights. It also says, finally, the folks are scared. You know, a young lady who ran for the Democratic uh, seat for the Senate in the primary, African-American woman, won. And she's running on an issue to deal with poverty and those issues didn't raise the $8,200 and won the primary. And now is uh, the Democratic senator for, uh, nominee. So there's something going on in Tennessee. Uh, it's the place where they murdered and assassinated Dr. King. But there's a rising going on in Tennessee. And we've got to stand beside them in that state. Uh, I want to ask, ask you this, um, 
you have been, uh, of course, fighting many of these white conservative evangelicals uh, over when it comes to the poor and other public policy issues. And one of the biggest folks who has refused uh, to debate you, in fact, when y'all went down to Lynchburg, Virginia, Jerry Falwell mm. Jr. issued a statement saying that if any of y'all even stepped foot on that campus, y'all were to be arrested. Well, today he's no longer the president of uh, that university, the nation's largest, the world's largest Christian university, because of a report where this pool boy down in Miami said that he had uh, an affair with Jerry Falwell's wife, would have sex with her, and Jerry Falwell would be sitting there watching them do it. He tried to release a statement yesterday, putting it on his wife, saying she had the affair, he wasn't involved, and it was an extortion attempt. After this story dropped, clearly the board of trustees didn't uh, buy that. Now he is out as president. Uh, look, humans are humans, folks sin. But the issue here is that folk like Jerry Falwell Jr. have attacked, berated, uh, put, used their moral superiority over, lauded it over so many other people, and now lightness is uh, busting him out, and now he's out as president of the university. Well, you know, Roland, I'm not, not always up on my, all of my news, and you just informed me I had heard about the piece about the uh, fatal attraction. I didn't hear the last piece about them watching. But, you know, beyond all of that, as you say, people are simple, people have their flaws and their flaws. Jerry Falwell, like his father, is an, is an extremist. And we have to remember, uh, and a racist extremist. And we have to remember that most of these people got their call to fame. Jerry Falwell did, uh, senior Pat Robertson, in their standing against black people and the right to vote. It was Pat Robertson's daddy that coined the frame interposition and nullification. Uh, Jerry Falwell, as you remember, senior, came out against Bishop Tutu. He was, they all were, were anti-desegregationists, uh, or excuse me, they were all segregationists. They hated desegregation. And the whole issue around abortion was only after they could no longer publicly stand against the issue of desegregation. So Jeff Hall has been a problem for a long time. You're exactly right, Roland. We went to Lynchburg to have a revival with other Christians. In fact, tomorrow night I'm doing a piece with them. It's called the Red Letter Christian. People who were formerly evangelicals, white evangelicals, they don't call themselves that more anymore because of the way that term has been so abused. But, but he told us if we came on that campus to recruit students to the revival, that we would be arrested, that, that people would be arrested. And now he has been arrested because of his, you know, I don't mean physically, you know, by, by the police, but, but history is arresting him and his own immorality is arresting him. Uh, and, and it happens. How often has this happened down uh, through the years, uh, uh, Roland? You know, I could read the list. I won't go off all of them, uh, but you can find time and time down through the history the people who claim to be so much better than black people, so much better than gay people, so much better than everybody else, and then something happens and the wool gets pulled off and you see you know, so much ugliness. But I don't want people to get distracted. The board of trustee members, most of them, that will remove him for this, and you know, this is, it had to be this extreme, will also fight to block your health care and fight to encourage voter suppression. 
Don't get it twisted. They will throw away one of their own. They talk a lot about being Christians and forgiveness and so forth and so on, but they will throw away anybody who undermines their claim to this great high morality above anybody else, particularly gay people and so forth and so on. But while they still will maintain their political immorality and being against voter rights, against living wages, against health care, and really against democracy. Last uh, question, question for you. Republicans start their uh, convention tonight. Uh, they've already started uh, the lion already. Yeah, that's uh, what they call it, the convention? <laughs> the virtual convention. <laughs> Do you think the poor is going to come up this week? You know, the sad thing is it might, in a, but in a crazy way. You remember when, when Donald Trump went into a poor community uh, doing his, um, when he was running for president, and then he asked that question, you know, what, what, what black people have to lose, and he brought up poverty about black people in an all-white audience. He probably will in some crazy, cynical way, which is why I say to the Democrats, you ought to bring it up in the right way. You ought to really be talking about it in the right way. You ought to be talking about how him and McConnell, uh, everything they have done is catered to the wealthy and the greedy, uh, has left people floundering and floundering, has hurt the poor the most. I heard my dear friend uh, Nancy Pelosi today, and she was saying, we need to get this stimulus money. We need McConnell to release it and vote on it so we can put money in the hands of the middle class. And I was screaming at the no, it should be middle class, working people, poor people, low-wealth people. Say the whole litany. Because what you're going to get at this convention, I guess that's what you call it. I, I could call it some other C words, uh, cultic, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 but I, I won't go into all of those. But, what you, but instead, we need to challenge it up front because what they will do is what they normally do. You know how it happens, Roland. They will call, uh, they will say, we're going to start a committee on freedom. And it had nothing to do with freedom. It all has to do with, with say, blocking the vote. They will say, we're going to be the moral majority. It has nothing to do with moral majority. It has something to do with that immoral reality. They don't mind using terms and words for, for their own purposes. And so we're going to hear a whole lot of lies, a whole lot of self-worship, a whole lot of public idolatry, a whole lot of cultic uh, 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 worshiping of personality. And, and what we ought to do, I think, is effort. every time you hear a lie, register 10 people to vote and get them to vote. Every time you hear a lie, register 10 people, get them to vote and vote. Every time you hear a lie, call somebody and ask them to call somebody else and call somebody else and say, look, we got to vote. Because if you don't get motivated by these lies this week, I don't know what's going to motivate you. Reverend Dr. William Barber, we certainly appreciate it, sir. Thank you so very much. Take care, Roland, always. Hey, I got a little purple on, but I ain't lost the 06. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we got to show them how to wear our colors. And also, uh, I'm rocking the... Uh, uh, the Alphas, first of all, we vote uh, shirt today oh, yeah. uh, to get people yeah, okay. to encourage them to do so. Yeah, this little bishop color, I want the Omegas to get it twisted here. That's all that is. <laughs> <laughs> I you, appreciate man. it, bro. Thanks a lot. All, all right, right, folks, uh, don't forget, voting absolutely matters. We want you folks uh, to really focus on that. Uh, it is 70 days until Election Day. Uh, go to vote.org, and what you should be able to do is check your registration. That is critically important. I got an email uh, from a guy uh, just the other day. When you got, go to my iPad, please. Uh, got a, he got an email from the other day from a guy who said that, he said, Roland, th thanks for pushing this issue. He said that I saw your notice and I went 
he said, I, I just voted. And he said that he went to double check his registration uh, and realize, here it is, Winston, Washington. Thank you, frat brother. Yes, I am AFIA. Thank you for pushing check vote registration. I just voted here in Phoenix, Arizona, April 4th, 2020. Yet I was not registered. He said, I re-registered. I've been a permanent vote by mail since 2009, yet I was taken off. Man, the same day that Trump was in Arizona, so obvious. So thank you, brother. Uh, he said, uh, of course, he pledged April 29th, 1977. Uh, and so he says, uh, go on, brother. And so, folks, this is why I need y'all to go to vote.org. I need you to go to check your registration to make sure you are registered, to make sure your name has not been removed from the ballots. Also, I need y'all to also double, if you do request it by mail, I need you to double check what comes in the mail. You see right here, you can check your registration, you can register to vote, you can vote by mail, you can also fill out the census right here. I need you to do that. I need you to do that because look, there are games that are being played. There are games that are being played all across this country, uh, sending out fake ballots, things along those lines. So I need you to double check uh, also where you're getting it from. That if you are requesting a mail-in ballot, it must be coming from your particular state. There's a process. Some folks can request them online. Some people can actually request them in the mail. I got, mine's in, got mine in the mail the other day, filled it out to request my absentee ballot had to mail that back in, the ballot is going to be sent to me. But I need y'all to double check that because there are games that are being played out there all the time. Uh, we're gonna go to a break now. We're gonna, uh, we, have another, we have another spot and encourages you to fill out the census so guys get that ready. When we come back, I'm gonna talk to a book author who says it's time for white women to really deal with the issue of race and it's time for it to be a real, honest, hardcore conversation. Jenna Arnold joins me next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. As our community comes together to support the fight against racial injustice, I want to take a second to talk about one thing we can do to ensure our voices are heard. Not tomorrow, but now. Have your voices heard in terms of what kind of future we want by taking the 2020 census today? at 2020census.gov. Now, folks, let me help you out. The census is a count of everyone living in the country. It happens once every 10 years. It is mandated by the U.S. Constitution. The thing that's important is that the census informs funding, billions of dollars, how they are spent in our communities every single year. I grew up in Clinton Park in Houston, Texas, and we wanted, to, we wanted new parks and roads and uh, senior citizen center. Well, the census helps inform all of that and where funding goes. It also determines how many seats your state will get in the U.S. House of Representatives. Young black men and young children of color are historically undercounted. 
which means a potential loss of funding for services that helps our community. Folks, we have the power to change that. We have the power to help determine where hundreds of billions in federal funding go each year for the next 10 years. Funding that can impact our community, our neighborhoods, and our families and friends. Folks, responses are 100% confidential and can't be shared with your landlord, law enforcement, or any government agency. So please, take the 2020 Census today. Shape your future. Start at 2020census.gov. Folks, it has been since 1964, Democrats have gotten more than 42% of the white vote in 2016. Even with a white woman running for president, Donald Trump got 53% of the white female vote. Suffice to say that if he had not gotten the majority of the white female vote, he would not have been elected president. As a national organizer for the 2017 Women's March in Washington, Jenna Arnold showed her commitment to making the world better. In a recently released book, Raising Our Hands, she is calling on white women to resist complacency and to start having the urgent conversations about internal biases that they need to have. She joins us right now. Uh, Jenna, how you doing? Uh, looks like we're having some... I'm good, how are you? Thanks All for right. having me. Looks like we're having some issues with your Skype. Uh, and so, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. Uh, so, guys, so let's just do this here uh, to my folks. If y'all could just uh, uh, work with uh, Jenna Skype uh, because she's breaking up and I can barely hear her. She's breaking up. So uh, y'all could just work on that and then just come right back to me. I'm going to do this here, folks. We got an in memoriam. New Orleans chef Leon West, the first executive chef of the Ernest N. Morial Convention Center, passed away Friday at the age of 74. West was on the job at the time, working in the kitchen at Messina's when he collapsed and was brought to University Medical Center. The cause of death has not been determined. West was originally from Boston and grew up in a family of eight children. He got his start in the business as a teenager bussing tables and washing dishes at a local diner. He attended the Massachusetts Vocational and Technical Schools Culinary Arts Program and later worked at the Sheraton Hotel in Boston. He started with National Food Service Company Aramark in 1978, and five years later, that company sent him to New Orleans to prepare the forthcoming convention center, which at the time was still being used for the World's Fair. When the center opened in 1984, West was the head of their culinary operation. Over the years, West orchestrated the food for high-profile events that came to New Orleans, including the National Football League Commissioner's Party, Taste of NFL, Taste of the NFL, the NCAA Bowl Championship Series, the VIP Reception, and the NBA All-Stars Players' Party. He certainly was a huge force there, creating a war that recognized chefs who didn't work in restaurants, who were not these superstar chefs, but the people who did the work every single day. Chef Leon West, uh, also inducted into the uh, Black Chefs Hall of Fame, uh, and of course, New Orleans, that's back-to-back -back years, have lost two giants. Uh, first, Leah Chase, and now Chef Leon West. Our thoughts and prayers are with the West family and the, all those who loved him. All right, folks, uh, if we can go back to Jenna Arnold, hopefully uh, her Skype has improved. All right, her Skype is not ready yet, so let's just do this here. Uh, folks, a new series of uh, antiviral Trump ads have been dropped. Uh, Don Winslow, uh, first of all, 11 films dropped this drop this new one uh, uh, when it comes to uh, turn, turns of Vote Blue. Y'all watch this viral ad. 
Evil is real. We ignore it when it seems educated, polite, superficially charming, even sophisticated. We trivialize it, ignore it, and when we do, it grows. On March 31st in the Trump White House, Trump's COVID team led by Jared Kushner decided to ignore testing in states with Democratic governors. Evil was in that room. Oh, it looked like any other bureaucratic meeting. There were PowerPoints, spreadsheets, briefings, and estimates of the dead. It was that meeting that led to Trump policies that would kill more Americans than Pearl Harbor, Vietnam, and 9-11. More Americans than World War I. It was deliberate, cold, political, premeditated. Some people say Trump and Kushner were incompetent when it came to COVID, but let's call it what it is. It is what it is. Evil. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. been more powerful than they are now. Effectively, they are gods. I am the chosen one. Western leaders told us that the virus was under control and was unlikely to cause serious problems for anyone in our hemisphere. None of that was true. I'll tell you what, right security. Now, I think it's under control. News organizations exist to hold the powerful to account. Here we have the powerful acting with no accountability at all. No, I don't take responsibility at all. And our news media, they are cheering it on, besotted fangirls. God sent this president. He is a person of providence. No abuse is too grotesque for them. No talking point is too stupid to repeat. Reporters will do whatever they are told. They are all in. Hydroxychloroquine. 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 Totalitarianism does not shock us anymore. Maybe that's because all of a sudden, it's all around us. Nobody disobeys my orders. Well, I have the ultimate authority. So what to make of all of this? Well, it's long been considered out of bounds to question a person's patriotism. It's a very strong charge, and we try not ever to make it. But in the face of all of this, the conclusion can't be avoided. These people actually hate America. There's no longer a question about that. And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, they desperately want to control America more than anything. The job is hard. It requires a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass, and an ability to listen, and an abiding belief that each of the 330 million lives in this country has meaning and worth. 
president's words have the power to move markets. They can start wars or broker peace or awaken our worst instincts. You simply cannot fake your way through this job. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. Being president doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. It is what it is. Now, I use the hashtag we tried to tell you because black people, we, we, of course, were not voting for Donald Trump, but there's a whole bunch of white folks uh, who certainly voted for Donald Trump uh, in 2016. In fact, uh, a recent poll showed uh, that Donald Trump is leading when it comes to uh, white non-college voters. Uh, let's bring Jen Jenna Arnold back. Jenna, I was talking, uh, I was introducing you and I was talking about what happened in 2016, of course, the Women's March uh, also, which took place in 2017. And the bottom line is here, uh, you write in your book, look, white women got to got, look in the mirror at themselves to, when it comes to how they vote and the issues they actually focus on. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of outstanding questions Um around uh, how and why white women pulled the lever the way that they did in 2016 and arguably any other election uh, previously. Um, and it's obviously been very aligned with their uh, proximity to power and privilege and uh, concepts and constructs that they haven't quite understood. And because of the result of the 2016 election and all of the headline news um, it primarily in the horrific category over the past four years, certainly within the past two months, many of them are now asking harder questions of themselves, not just in how they're going to behave ultimately in the voting booth and what is the algorithm in which they take into that decision, but very much around how they're participating um, from a consumer perspective, from a broad citizen um, the decisions they're making on behalf of their family and the long-term impacts that might have on society. So there's a lot of folks from that demographic who are asking questions um, in ways they haven't previously. When that, when that extra video came out, uh, many people believe that there's no way you could be a woman and say, I'm perfectly fine with this guy being in the White House with what he had to say. That was so vile, that was so despicable. But frankly, what a, lot of, what a lot of these white women did is they were like, I'm cool with the tax breaks. I'm fine with right-wing Supreme Court justices. I will completely ignore the sexism. I will ignore this man's history, him talking about being over the pageant, joking with Howard Stern, going into the dressing room, seeing all these models naked. They just completely acted as if none of that stuff mattered. Because those are the kinds of excuses that they've made for their men for centuries. So it wasn't that they, it was suddenly a new series of hoops that they had to jump through when they heard a comment like that. These are the kinds of um, what uh, I 
use in the and reference in the book, I call them cognitive acrobatics. It's this expertise of backflips and cartwheels to convince yourself, oh, it's just easier if I put the kids to sleep or if I juggle all of life's decisions. And the same types of uh, performances happen around the men in our lives, right? A lot of, of women are anti-rape and and you know believe survivors until until their sons get accused of sexual harassment. And then it's suddenly, well, how short was her skirt? Or did she really say no? So there's this very fine line of how we protect the men in our lives, be it our sons, be it our husbands, our fathers, our bosses, and make excuses and sort of qualify them as like, you know, the, the <coughs> individual case or just that one off um, versus how when we make those kinds of excuses, be it for a presidential candidate or, or for those in our lives, that it's really, um, you know, it's a cancer for letting the patriarchy thrive. Uh, there was this particular scene Malcolm X um, described in his book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. He was speaking Yale, Harvard one of these largely white institutions and it was a white woman who came up to him and she said, Mr. X, I really believe in your cause. How can I help? He said, no, he, uh, he said, what, she said, what can I do? He said, nothing. He later wrote in the book that he wishes he had told her, look, I don't need your help organizing black people. I need you going talk to your own people, to white people. Uh, I've had Jane Elliott on this show, Tim Wise on this show as well. And, um, what you're also laying out is that these are the conversations that white folks need to be having with white people. You know, right. not sitting here trying to say, oh, let's call in an African-American who can talk to us. Like, no, white folks need to be calling each other out and saying, no, this is what you're doing. And it's coming from somebody who looks just like you. So you can't sit here and BS me. That's right. That's right. I mean, Roland, I'm I'm Skyping you from a yacht club, not because I have a yacht and not because I like clubs, because if I walk downstairs in this patterned shirt that I'm on and I start having conversations about gun control or, or what's going to go down tonight at the RNC with the people who are sitting at the table is a lot more effective than if I'm um, at a protest or if I'm having the same conversation with folks in, you know, in Williamsburg or in Carroll Gardens in New York City. I mean, this is what my call to white women who are suddenly questioning their identity, suddenly trying to figure out where their place is in the front lines, desperate to make an impact, because while sometimes we'll say, oh, those well-intended white women, um, you know, can end up being a headache, but genuinely there's really authentic, heartfelt intention. And there's very, very powerful resource. And I don't just mean by the dollar a bill, but white women are the largest voting bloc in the United States. They will be through 2060 when it's still thought that they'll control 56 of the 100 Senate seats. They control 85% of the U.S. economy, which is larger than a huge amount of uh, countries combined. And they're responsible for raising the next generation of white men. So this demographic, while... Um, Lots of very comical and enjoyable Karen memes, and while easy to write off, 
is an army of resource and currency and ammo that is now asking questions about what they can do to participate and be part of the solution. And while, yes, there are very concrete things that they can do in voting booths come November 3rd and very concrete conversations that they can have with the Uncle Bobs in their lives and the stop making of excuses for the men in their lives, what really has to happen with this demographic is so much reckoning about the types of um, uh, performance chores, pretending perfection, the cognitive acrobatics that we're so great at, the sort of the playing the invisible. Um, I like to say that the work that has to be done is right there in that room, right there in that room with you. So yes, to Malcolm X's point, there's so much organizing that that white folk need to be able to do in their communities. I like to think of myself. I'm not a scholar on any of these subjects. I'll be sitting at the feet of scholars that represent marginalized communities for the rest of my life. Um, but I can surely be a conduit. I can be a conduit for those folks who thought racism was not a thing because we elected a black president. Um, so, so there's so much work that has to be done within this demographic. And I like to open the front gate of the white picket fence and invite them all out. When, when was your moment of reckoning? When did you it hit you with you said, you know what, I have to deal with this. I've got to talk about it. I got to write about it. I mean, people have been asking me how long did it take you to write this book, and the truth is, it's taken me thirty nine years to write this book. Um, but I've had a series of moments of clarity that have all been facilitated by my friends of color. Right? It was. 10 years ago when I said something along the lines of, I don't see color. And a friend of mine said, mm, are you sure? And took me down that path. It was a series of conversations around um, wealth creation and what capitalism actually means by friends um, that all of you would know whose names you would all know who said, hey, you understand what that means from a long-term consequential perspective for so many marginalized communities. And it's because I've built trustful relationships with so many um, friends that represent different faiths, religions, creeds, races, ability statuses, socioeconomic classes, that they've been able to nudge me in ways that I don't know if I would have, I don't think that would have happened had I stayed in the cul-de-sac that I was born and raised in. Um, and I don't think I would have seen sort of the game that was being played around me and I, how I was propping that up. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of tiny ones. Um, and then I think very much it happened when I was standing on stage at the women's March on January 21st, 2017, the day after the 45th inauguration. And realized that it was a sea of pink hats. And from a qualitative perspective, it felt to me like most of them were being worn by white women. And I couldn't back into that, the optics of that with the statistic that 54% of American white women voted for Trump in 2016. And while I'll never believe in exit poll in my life because it's somebody standing on the steps of the high school with a piece of paper and a clipboard asking who someone voted for, even if we extend a very, very generous academic margin of 10% on either side, that's still 44% of American white women or 64% of American white women pulling the lever for a candidate that is not in the best interest of humanity, period, full 
stop. And so I couldn't quite reckon with what I was seeing, with what the statistics were suggesting. And my mom is one of, um, of nine and I've been raised by very, um, amazing value-based women who didn't behave or, or make the choice that I thought they would have going into the 2016 election. I just couldn't reconcile the numbers with the intention, with what I was seeing. It just wasn't adding up. And frankly, it still, it still isn't. I heard you mention a poll earlier about the percentage of white folk that still support Trump. Um, and I would challenge and caution everybody heading in, into this uh presidential to take those polls with not a little bit of salt, but like a bucket of salt, dump it on your head every single time. I'm still licking my wounds from um, uh, the 2016 uh, polls, the suggestion going into the 2016 presidential that we were in better shape than we obviously ultimately ended up being. Um, but I do think that white folk have become more divided. The binary is more extreme. You see more Trump flags flying everywhere. You see more cancel culture being <laughs> performed online. But I'm not I'm not quite sold that that the numbers are as high as some of the polls are suggesting. I'll bring my panel here uh, as a series of uh, they can round of questions here. I'm going to start first with Mustafa Santiago Ali Mustafa. A question for Jenna Arnold. Yeah, what is uh, the, the one or two things that, that white women should actually be moving forward on to make change happen? I think that's a really good question. I, you know, I think, again, there's the, like, esoteric 30,000-foot perspective of how I'm going to readjust the prism of how I see my role in the world, how I see my responsibility to others being. And I think that's a lifetime shift. And then there's the very turnkey items, which is like a language adjustment, right? Like we saw this with Amy Cooper when everybody said, oh, well, is she racist? And instead of asking whether or not she's racist, let's all just lean into the fact that everyone has racial biases, anti-Semitic biases, bias against blonde haired girls with bangs. And instead of trying to figure out exactly what the language is around it, take a step back and start positioning oneself as a goalie. So I think there's a lot of 101 stuff that has to happen, right? Like we teach what we did to the indigenous in this country in second grade. So we don't really have to teach it. We teach enslavement in fourth grade. So we don't really have to teach it. So there's a lot of historical work that this demographic has to do. And then there's the 30,000 foot, how you're going to be a better human being, how you're going to make different choices of, uh, in your life um, on behalf of the collective, not just the individual. Kelly question. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, it is definitely noted. Uh, my question is, given the work that you are doing and how it will shift the power structure in this country, how do you plan to reconcile personally with the power that you have as a white woman with the, the pending shift of, of power dynamics should we actually gain equity as black people in this country and other minorities? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I understand your question. Are you talking about me personally? Well, it can be you personally. I mean, you can't speak for all white women, so we can start with you. <laughs> Which I do the all the time. I'm happy to. You. Um, yeah, sure. I, I, you, it's, it's, it's hard. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was... Um, I. 
I wrestled with writing this book for a number of very obvious reasons. Even having, I knew that I could be a conduit to my mom and all of her friends and to my aunts and all of their friends and all of the folks that are like, of course I care, but like didn't really understand what that, how that caring had to morph into very hardcore radical action. Um, and so I, but yet I knew that there was an appetite um, to learn more. And so even by writing a book that takes up an inch and a half on the bookshelf at any given bookstore, it's an inch and a half that's not going to another voice, to an indigenous voice, for example, um, that, that needs to be heard. And so I really wrestled with that a lot. And there were so many nights when I was like, how can I get out of this contract? How can I get out of this contract? Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And so I think in, in, in that kind of question, I don't, yet know the answer. But what I do know is there's the tiny things that I have the capacity to do, be it like 100% of my proceeds from this book are being given to organizations like tiny nonprofits that represent marginalized communities, particularly in the pregnancy, labor and delivery space. So there's ways that like I can transition some of that currency, but I'd be lying to suggest, or it would be a false performance to suggest that by publishing a book like this means that I don't get some other opportunity in 25 years from now that I can't fathom at this moment because I wrote this book, an, an opportunity that somebody else might not get because they didn't get the book deal. Um, and I don't know yet. And one of the questions that I spend a lot of time talking about with um, some of my friends who are activists is like, is there a line that exists that white women won't cross when it comes to giving up power? And mm -hmm. I think the answer is yes. And I think it's different for each person. And so I keep trying to fish for mine and figure out where mine is. And I haven't yet figured it out. Um, you can get down to the rawness, like mammal perspective of like, well, do you save somebody else's kid from drowning before you save your own? Like that, I don't really know, but I sort of like couch in the mammal you know, species survival section of the bookshelf. Um, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that, but I do wonder if there's this rising conversation and that saying of all tides lift all, uh, rising seas lift all ships, that if there is that happening, um, while there's the active discipline of moving over for marginalized voices, if the, if the consequence or if the negative outcome might not be as extreme as we would have predicted six months ago or four years ago. Eugene. Hey, so one thing that we've been seeing is that Donald Trump's making a huge play for uh, suburban, essentially suburban white women. Um, do you think uh, Democrats are doing enough to uh, fight for the vote? And if not, what do you think they should be doing? No. Um, and again, based on my calculation, um, I still believe that the most important vote is suburban white women. Um, again, just from a numeric perspective. And, you know, Trump is really nailing it when he's saying things like they're trying to take Christianity away. Now, like, what the hell does that even mean? And um, take it away from home. And every Christian person on the planet has a different definition of what Christianity actually means. So this idea of like, um, this idea of taking Christianity away, we know is, is bogus. But the second you reposition moms in 
to a scarcity corner of the there's not going to be a desk at the school for your kid. Your kid's not going to have water. Oh, they won't have any playing time on soccer or da, 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 da. like this idea of scarcity is going to work for this demographic. It's going to work for them because um, there has been a very concrete American narrative passed down from generation to generation to generation to women, which is it is your patriotic duty to raise your family, to serve them, to build a life that demonstrates some level of performance. Um, and so I think if they continue to play the scarcity angle, they might be able to get enough white women to do what they had done last time, which is sit out the election completely, which is not something we'd be interested in um, um, because they'll sit in the position of, oh, well, there isn't a perfect candidate, so I'm just not going to vote. And in terms of the Democratic Party, I think this is an opportunity for Harris um, to um, to own very much the, oh, you want me up at night with the light on in that White House, because there's enough mama bear there in the same way that like Palin played the like hockey mom card. Um, that that I think Harris can step in and be like, oh, not on my watch. Not on my watch, not your babies, I think is something that might be able to close the deal with them. All right, then. Folks, uh, pull the book, the book again. Uh, pull the book up. It is Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding uh, Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines by Jenna Arnold. Jenna, we surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, then. All right, folks, today on Capitol Hill, well, guess what? The Postmaster General, DeJoy, he was taken through uh, the ringer uh, when it comes to all the cuts that have taken place, the dismantling of equipment. One of the folks who really jammed him up was Brendan Lawrence uh, from Michigan, who spent worked 30 years for the post office. Here's your line of questioning. Postmaster General, uh, shortly after you took the office, I reached out to schedule a introductory call with no agenda in particular just to share my experiences as a career postal employee to kind of welcome you to the seat but my request was turned down I was told you needed uh, your time to get acquainted with the agency and that you did not have time to uh, have that meeting but I've seen since you've been um, in office the time to get antiquated to make these really, really impactful decisions on delivery and processing of the mail, you are comfortable with doing so. I want to ask you, um, Mr. DeJoy, are you familiar with Chapter 1 of 39 U.S. States Code? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Um, the United States, the code reads, the United States Postal Service shall be operated as a basic and fundamental service provided by the people, to the people, by the government of the United States, authorized by the Constitution, created by Act of Congress, and supported by the people. Mr. DeJoy, did you take an oath of office when you became the Postmaster General? I did, ma'am. I remember when I took my oath of office, when I was sworn in to be an employee of the Postal Service. 
And to just tell you my journey, because I'm sure you're familiar with some of the names. I started as a distribution clerk working tour one. Then I moved to being a letter carrier, then to being a um, acting supervisor, then a supervisor of delivery and collection. I served in HR, I served in safety and health, I served as an EEO investigator. I had the entire state of Michigan in a district role of the women's program and for career counseling and development. And I ended my career uh, after several task forces that I was put on to monitor and to track the mail before we made decisions like taking out equipment, density counts. I, as a supervisor of delivery, I know what it took to remove a post office box. It's called a collection box. It's not a blue box. It's a collection box. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about, have you ever served as a letter carrier? Um, the first, first off, man, I'd like to congratulate you on your career path. And, and no, I have never served as a, a letter carrier. So I did, sir. So the Postal Service is introducing a new initiative called Expedited to Street Afternoon Sortation. And it reduces the morning office time to allow carriers to leave for the street earlier. And then upon returning from the streets, the carriers are then to sort to sort any undelivered mail for the next day. Are you aware what that initiative that you have rolled out, that, the impact it has on delivery carrying? The intent, that, that was a program that was uh, on the shelf. The intent of that program uh, is to adjust for, there's been a significant decline in mail, as you, as you know, and to adjusted that was worked out with union leadership to run a, run a, you know, to run a pilot. Uh, uh, the pilot, I, I stopped the pilot when I stopped everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, the intent of it is to get the carriers out earlier so they can come back earlier. And that's basically uh, in, in the day. Well, Mr. DeJoy, I really uh, stress that you do s some deliberate work. Excuse me. Do some deliberate work to understand the impact that it has. Because if a carrier does not come back, because this is the challenge that we have all the time. A carrier, if he has only one piece of advertisement, must stop at every home. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the volume, if you're making the same amount of stops, you're not going to shorten the time. And so when you do that, the carrier is going to be out basically the same amount of time. And so when they come back, you're delaying the mail. We have, I have complaints in my office from people getting delivery one day a week now, sir. That is not according to your oath. That is not according to what the uh, chapter one of 39 says your role is. I want to, um, in my short period of time, Madam Chair, I was so interrupted. So there were a number of people who questioned him. Republicans was trying to say, oh, he was being attacked. Uh, that was so grossly unfair. Eugene, but the one that got me was when he was asked by Congresswoman Katie Porter, who made the decision to institute these changes? He said he didn't know. She's like, but you're the Postmaster General. How do you not know? Uh, and he says, well, plans were put into place to make these changes before I arrived. But still, how do you not know? And then he said, well, the post office, they've got 33,000 executives, but you're the Postmaster General. I mean, you would think that 
you know you're going before the house, you went before the Senate on a Friday, the questions was going to get asked, you might want to be able to say who made the decisions. Who made the decisions to dismantle, <clears throat> like for instance, to dismantle mail sorting equipment? Kind of important. Yeah, and I thought, I thought it was even funnier is when, um, you know, he tried to make the argument, oh, I'm the CEO and not the COO. When on a normal corporate structure, the COO res- you know, reports to the CEO who's responsible for everything. So at the end of the day, the buck stops with him. Um, what you saw a lot today was him, you know, trying to pass on uh, responsibility. Um, you know, and of course, you know, you had your grandstanding from, you know, a lot of some of the, you know, hardened Trump Republicans. Um, but, you know, the, the hearing today with the joy, um, you know, I think it's going to lead to more hearings, and I think it, it, it may actually lead to uh, you know more uh, some actually stringent penalties. One of the one of the more one of the critical notes that was uh, taken today was that one of the previous uh, postmaster generals was fined twenty seven thousand dollars for what essentially was a three hundred thousand dollar conflict of interest. The joy has upwards of a hundred million dollars and 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 conflicts of interest. Um, so by that standard, you know, he probably should be hit with a pretty hefty fine and probably ousted from the position. Um, but that's all going to be dependent upon what happens on November 3rd. This is, I mean, I, I, I tried to listen to what he was trying to lay out there, uh, Kelly. I'm sorry. I wasn't buying it. I wasn't buying it for a second. Uh, th- this whole idea of, well, we're making these changes to make it more efficient, but you're slowing it down. I mean, to have people not getting medicine and the massive delays, I, I'm just trying to... And then to say that, well, we have, we have less volume. Well, here's the deal. That means that if there's less volume, then you should be speeding up the delivery of mail because you don't have as much to deliver. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, we heard last week how they're taking machines out, but they stopped doing that. But the, like I said last week, the damage has already been done. Um, the fact that he has no experience in this industry is apparent. And it was blatantly apparent during this hearing. Like you heard just snippets of it just now with the congresswoman just asking him simple questions about, you know, the infrastructure of, of the post office and how the uh, mailmen work and how things are supposed to be done. And now these new policies and changes are are inhibiting the the workflow and and st- and the streamline of of protocols and quality control within the post office and we can go about all day as to what's wrong here and what's supposed to happen and what have you but it's clear that he does not care um, and it is clear here that even though there are other repercussions to the slowing down of mail such as the the delay of important deliveries like medicine and the like, it's clear that this is voter suppression. This is the primary reason for any of these changes at this particular time. And it's it's disgusting how you have to stoop so low in order to do something just so vile. Right. And and it, it's just it's just ridiculous to uh, me. Um look, I'm lying, Mustafa, uh, th- this is all tied to the election, but the other thing is this here. This is part of the deal also when you hear free market ideas, oh, we can privatize. Look, all of these Republicans from these rural areas, it's amazing how quiet they are, and those are the people who stand the most to lose 
because they're not going to be able to have access to the same type of services when you have multiple, when you have FedEx, when you have UPS, when you have other ways of being able to communicate. Yeah, these are games that hurt everybody. In the little teeny tiny community that I grew up in, we had a little small post office um, that literally served our community. And I can only imagine with what's currently going on how that would impact if that was still uh, in service today. So, you know, we know the game. We know it's a part of voter suppression. We also know the games that they play with privatization. They tried to do it in a number of different ways. And that's why on November the 3rd, folks gonna vote and vote even earlier than that. And you know, with uh, if you can, um, to make change happen. Uh, folks, also, before we go, uh, so the saga with Jerry Falwell Jr. continues. Now he is saying um, he has not resigned. Now he, he, he was so upset by the coverage that he called into uh, this Virginia outlet uh, to say that no, uh, he is still on indefinite leave and he has not, he, he has not resigned. <laughs> what a time to be alive. I'm sorry. So I'm laughing because no, nobody the this. is just ridiculous. You know, I I grew up in a mega church. I know the inner workings on an intimate level of, of leadership and politics and all of that stuff. And it it's so petty to me and incredibly obvious how hypocritical he is. I would not be surprised if, in fact, I'm pretty sure I saw some articles today where the 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 pool boy in question is saying that he had an entanglement, so to speak, with both the wife and the husband, which would not be uh, surprising to me at all because that's usually where it ends up leading to. So I just feel like just living your truth and stuff like this won't happen. Um, to to have a ministry to uh, that is so restrictive and how you're supposed to love and feel and and function none of which are are you know delineated in the bible i mean we can go back and forth on that but regardless if if you have this in you why teach it a different way to somebody else because not only are you restricting them you're restricting yourself okay and what comes in the dark comes to light okay and I first just, of all i just find it dumb okay but this ain't no this ain't Look, this ain't no shock, okay? We, first of all, we've you dealing with Donald Trump, Eugene, who's sitting there in the White House, and these fools have excused all of his freakiness and all of his drama. He just got he just got ordered last week to pay the legal bills of a porn star. I mean, there there, there are excuses always. We're not electing a pastor. We are electing a president. Um, and, and so look, I mean, you know. The, the, the conservative right has ceded the moral high ground probably for forever at this point. Um, you know, they have no place to talk about anything. Um, you know, last week, you know, they, they tried to, you know, the night Bill Clinton was speaking, they dropped, you know, his uh, Epstein picture. Um, you know, they try to make all these moral equivalencies. No, you literally have no right to talk about anything at this point after, you know, from 2015 on, you know, when, you know, gave their support to Trump. You know, some of them ran to Trump. And now, you know, between now and then, they've completely controlled the Trump line. So, um, you know, you know, it, it, it's, the conservative right at this point is a joke. 
I'm laughing. But here's the deal, though. I appreciate this, uh, Mustafa, because uh, we get to laugh uh, with um, his ass all week as Republicans are meeting. And I'm sure um, morals, faith, values, family uh, will come up along with um, super freaks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, only thing i can say is ezekiel 16 where they talked about sodom and gomorrah he should read it again hey but but you know but again though they don't you know know the interesting thing here the interesting thing here um the lead-in to the convention is literally jerry falwell has a scandal you know any other year one of the falwells of him is speaking at the convention but the lead into the RNC this year is Jerry Falwell has a huge has a huge moral failing scandal leading into the RNC. That should tell you everything you need to know about 2020 and the Republican Party. I appreciate it because uh, we gonna be bored to death with that uh, RNC convention, and so uh, they uh, this gives us opportunity for lots of fun. We certainly appreciate that whole thing, Jerry. Thank you, appreciate it, Mustafa Kelly. Uh, Eugene, thank you so very much. All right, folks, uh, <laughs> tomorrow uh, we'll I, I could have showed I could have showed y'all some some lies from Donald Trump, but we're used to seeing those lies. And so but that was his hilarious video Paris Denard dropped uh, of him touting Donald Trump. I swear that video was done by elementary school video crew. I'm just saying, I mean, could y'all make some better videos? That's how it is. Folks, I'm going to see y'all tomorrow right here at Roller Martin Unfiltered. Don't forget, vote.org. Check your status. Register to vote. If you want to vote by mail, put the request in now. Do not procrastinate. And at vote.org, you can also uh, fill out uh, this 2020 census or go to 2020census.gov. Let's make sure that we get counted to ensure that we get our money back to our communities. Holla! BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com this episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.